Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Front and center, the main story this morning, talks in Washington, high level between the Chinese and the United States, and a conversation, according to our team down in Washington, about a currency pact. Ibrahim Rakbari joining us here in New York, City's global head of FX analysis. A currency pact. We talked about this earlier in the year. We have no detail on what it would entail, no detail on whether both sides would agree, and no detail whatsoever on what the enforcement mechanism might be. Ibrahim, I'm sure you've given this thought before today because it's been a story through much of the last 12 months. What are your thoughts on it now? So I think that the principal thing to keep in mind is that the currency issues are actually pretty easy to resolve between the U.S. and China because their, their interests are fairly, fairly aligned. The U.S. doesn't want a stronger dollar. The Chinese don't want a weaker renminbi at, uh, at this time. Uh, they don't want to encourage even more capital outflows. So overall, I think this issue will be dealt with. It, it won't be very far-reaching. I think we have the template. The template is what the U.S. agreed with Korea, what's part of the uh, USMCA agreement in, in, uh, in essence, which is effectively more transparency around FX interventions and some commitment not to, quote unquote, manipulate FX. So I don't think it's a big deal. It's relatively easy to resolve. The timing is just the Chinese are expecting to get something out of it. And I'm not quite sure we're there this week. The agreement in and of itself feels very superficial if this is what they agree on. Ultimately, the good news, though, I think for investors is that according to our reporting, if we can secure some kind of pact around this, it would be phase one on the road to perhaps phase two and three, which is securing a deal around the tougher things and avoiding the tariff hike of next week. Ibrahim, we've been here before. We've been here so many times. This market is being whipsawed by headline after headline. What is your advice to your clients right now? So we, we think overall this is, still a, uh, this is still a pretty cautious and challenging uh, global environment. We're right at the cusp of what's consistent data-wise with a soft landing, but it doesn't take much to steep us into the hard landing scenario. So you're definitely better off having exposure to hard landing hedges. So in FX space, that would certainly be to more yen upside, for instance, down the line. The dollar is not a bad place to be either. But it is still a pretty diffuse environment, so you don't want to fully commit to a hard landing environment. I want to translate the currency chat. Yen upside means stronger yen. Stronger yen, yes. Stronger yen. I mean, I mean, Japan plays a huge pivot point here, frankly, like Turkey does in the Middle East. But Japan in the Eastern Asia and the Pacific Rim, do they want a strong yen? No, they, they don't. And in fact, I should be very clear, we are at, at a pretty pivotal moment this month. We have a BOJ meeting coming up later this month where they're likely to at yeah. least have some action. And we have an important uh, five-yearly review from the government pension fund, which again will probably try and stem the appreciation pressure. But my point here is, in the general context we're in, that's probably not enough to, to, put, uh, to put a cap on, on the yeah. end. And particularly if things get worse, I think that's going to be the Just because of time. And you and I met, talked earlier about how quiet the market's been. The eurostasis now seems critical. What is the news flow that will make euro move a demonstrable set of figures where I can make money? Is it Lagarde or is it something else I don't see out there? I, I think it should be something else. Now, we, we have argued that you were actually able to make money on euro because it kept on drifting lower over the last 12 months, and particularly euro dollar has been quite inefficient. Okay, great, but now but, what? Yes, and, <laughs> and now we think what, what would be the big driver is, is in fact that we see real recession risk in Germany, and if that spreads to the rest of Europe, that I think would be a, a serious potential further downside 
for for Europe. But for, but we actually think we'll see the continued drift rather than an acceleration of the trend. Well, Ibrahim, let's explore your baseline, your base case. You believe we can engineer a soft landing here. Is that still your base case? It, it is, but only only really just. This is a low uh, conviction it, call. It, it, exactly. We uh, we we are in very mixed circumstances. So we we weighed up both of those scenarios, and right now we're. You, you know, we're, we're really in, in, in the middle of the road bet- between the two. We think that uh, there's a soft landing because we're actually still seeing some positive signs out of China in terms of the data. Credit markets, which historically have been a good indicator, are also still looking quite okay. And in fact, the US still has some positive signs. How as well. dependent is that low conviction baseline call of yours to engineer a soft landing? How dependent is that call on what happens between the Chinese and the United States over the next couple of months? Quite, quite dependent. So within that is, is an expectation that we will not see much further escalation from here. We should all be clear, ahead of the US election, the US is extremely unlikely to roll back tariffs. So we don't think we'll see a, a deal that resolves a lot of the issues. But we are at a point where we think there's only really tactical changes to the US-China dynamic for the next few months. So that gives you a fighting chance to keep the soft landing. I want to get a final question to you, because no doubt through much of this program, we'll be dedicating it to what's happening with the trade talks down in Washington, D.C. That will no doubt be the number one story for many people through the trading week as well. Yeah, Ibrahim, a theme we go back to on this program is that typically for investors, we're always overly focused on the shark closest to the boat, and we need to be thinking about what's happening elsewhere. Do you think we are underestimating events around the periphery of the main story at the moment that perhaps needs a little bit more attention? And if so, where is that attention? Where should it be? So we think there are a couple of other uh, important stories around. We already touched on Japan, including ahead of those uh, GPIF reviews later this month. The big story in G10FX for us is also the Scandies, where we see uh, a lot of sensitivity to a weaker global environment, but also central banks that seem to be a little bit behind the curve. So the Scandi, likes of Sweden. Downside, exactly. So weaker, weaker Swedish krona, and at least no further upside on the on the Norwegian side as well. And then, of course, the other big topic, including in FX land, is Brexit. Ibrahim, thanks so much. It has just been a crazy day. Thank you, thank you so much. Great for, to see you, Ibrahim. Uh, foreign exchange. We're focused on trade. We're focused on the markets. We welcome all of you coast to coast and worldwide. But right now, the interview of my day on Turkey. This is Stephen Cook, his book, False Dawn, absolutely extraordinary on the path from the Arab Spring. He joins us now with the Council on Foreign Relations from our studios in Washington. Steve, uh, Stephen, good morning. Um, I, I, I look at the events and let's bring it forward from new questions coming off of Mr. Erdogan's lengthy speech uh, in Ankara. What is next for Mr. Erdogan? Who does he have to sell the message to next? Well, really, the only people that he has to sell the message to is the Turkish public. Uh, And the real risk for Erdogan is that this incursion ends up being a more serious and protracted military conflict. Uh, The Turks have now entered an area that had been controlled by this Syrian Kurdish fighting force known as the People's Protection Units. Those Fighters aren't likely to take on Turkey directly, but engage in more of a guerrilla warfare. So for the moment, Erdogan is riding high. 
Uh, he gave a very tough speech uh, in Ankara not long ago. But uh, if this uh, operation unfolds and uh, ends and keeps Turkey in, in Syria for a long period of time, he may run into some political problems. Stephen, can you explore where the EU stands on all of this? There was a threat from the Turkish president today to open the doors to the 3.6 million Syrian refugees. Who speaks for the EU at the moment? Who's dealing with this? Well, this is a, a very important issue, and the, and the presence of so many refugees in Turkey, for which the European Union has been paying Turkey to keep them there, has been a, 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 a point of leverage with President Erdogan. Every time the European Union or individual European states have grown critical of Erdogan's domestic behavior, uh, and he certainly has proven himself to be a, an authoritarian like many others in the region, uh, he has threatened to yeah. uh, open the doors. So... Uh, there's going to be a U.N. Security Council meeting today. The EU is going to meet and discuss this. Uh, he is warning them not to take a strong stance against right. Turkey. Stephen Cook, I'm so glad to bring this up. John, you asked exactly the right question. I, as the ignorant American, was clueless about the unique Germanic-Turkish axis. I began with Sibel Kakali, the actress in Game of Thrones, and her charity work in her Germany for the Turkish community. Let's go right there. How does Chancellor Merkel adapt and adjust to what President Trump has wrought? Well, this is uh, something that the Europeans have been trying to deal with since the beginning of the Trump presidency. The decision to stand aside as the Turks rolled into Syria is one of those impulsive decisions that I think no one has really quite gotten used to. And the problem that, is, that it presents to the Europeans is that the resulting instability has an impact on European politics. Uh, Syrian refugees have been a flashpoint in European politics. There were neo-Nazis in Europe well before uh, the conflict in Syria began in March 2011, but the presence of so many Syrian refugees who have traveled through Turkey on the way to Europe, particularly in Germany, has uh, encouraged and provided fuel for the extreme right in Europe to make political gains. Stephen, there are so many different angles to explore around this story, the response from Europe, but also the response here in the United States, a real divide in the Republican Party now between the executive branch and senators, including Senator Lindsey Graham, an ally of the president, a close ally of the president, introducing a bipartisan bill to sanction Turkey. Stephen, how do you see the US response evolving in the coming months and the separation, the division between the White House and Congress. It, it really is rather extraordinary that it has taken a Turkish incursion into northern Syria to get the Democrats and the Republicans together, which I think demonstrates the depth of anger uh, on Capitol Hill towards Turkey, once uh, well regarded by almost everyone on Capitol Hill as a strategic partner of the United States. But this action has fueled concerns that um, it will take the pressure off the Islamic State, yeah. which is regrouping and rebuilding and will once again threaten the region and yeah. American interests and perhaps the United States. Uh, all that said, uh, it doesn't strike me that right. there's much that the Congress can do to prevent uh, further Turkish action or the American or the Trump administration's yeah. tacit support for what the Turks yeah. are doing. Stephen Cook, too quickly here from your book, False Dawn, Chapter 2, Bread freedom, social justice. Where will be the bread for the disrupted on the Turkish-Syrian border? Where will that come from? Well, that is an extremely important question. And already aid groups uh, have pointed out that uh, much of this population is dependent upon international non-governmental organizations, and their work is being disrupted by 
uh, this Turkish incursion. So people who are already quite vulnerable are once again finding themselves uh, in an even more difficult situation. Stephen, we appreciate your time this morning. Stephen Cook of the Council on Foreign Relations, Senior Fellow for Middle East and Africa Studies. Tom, a really original, unique situation that could end really quite badly. Now, we've got lots to talk about on trade with an esteemed equity guest, the mechanical engineer from Pennsylvania, knows how to use a slide rule, David Pearl with us with Epic uh, Partners. David, I want to go to the Aramco deal just out. What did they say, John, they're going to announce? They're going to... Announce a prospectus. It's our reporting, I think. Whatever. To, to give the green light for the world's biggest IPO. We're green lighting, but we're only green lighting. It's not an IPO. It's a stub to liquefy. Am I right, David? Define price. Oh, right. It, it, it's just a way to monetize their holding because they're really not selling much to the public. You're not going to okay. have any real ownership. But then you the just described stuff. Silicon Valley. I mean, Silicon yeah. Valley will put out what six, eight, twelve percent of an equity. Aramco's putting out one, two, three percent, whatever. Within all you've seen of the last ninety days is the Silicon Valley unicorn parade. Is it over? Uh, I do think it is over right now uh, because the market is seeing uh, a concern about companies continually losing money. These are companies that bleed free cash flow. They have to continually. They're the anti-epic. They ha- exactly. They have to go to market continually to stay in business, and the markets right. are getting a little leery of this. You're seeing that in numerous recent IPOs and bond offerings. Yeah. So we've got a bit of detail here, Tom. So let's go through oh, it. Um, the people involved in the deal, this is according to our reporting here at Bloomberg, are looking to sell two percent of Aramco, 2%. Um, which could raise forty billion. Now you can do the math on that. I'm just wondering <clears> how ambitious it is to sell two percent at forty billion dollars. Uh, David, they've they've continually tried to value this company at two trillion, and, and I'm not sure the market wants to deal with that valuation. That that that's the entire issue. So the smaller amount that they sell, the more likely they can keep the price higher, uh, because there isn't that much of a market. Looking at the rest of the energy stocks, Aramco's at such a premium. If, if you do this, do you get the sense that this is a very original IPO, and there could be some favors called in here to support the valuation? Of well, this issue. Well, again, the, the beauty of um, doing a traditional IPO is the placement. And so finding some strong buyers and keeping the share size as small as you can will help. Can we back up and Please say do. long ago and far away in my ute, an IPO was what, David? 80% of a company, 70%, 90% of a company. Maybe there's a little private stub off. I mean, John, we flipped this on its head. What you just said there, I would have told you 20 years ago was impossible. Well, in fact, usually the reason you would go public is because you're raising capital to grow. That's not the case in this one at all. This is about monetization of, you know, the owner's value. And David, that's that's why I struggle with the the valuation of this company, because you know what the intent and the objective is of the kingdom. They quite clearly see a top for this business if they want to sell it down. And if you're an investor looking at it, knowing that that's what the kingdom sees, why would you be a buyer of that story? Well, all I can say is it is a well-run company on the positive side. It is, so it you're is buying run, it for a dividend, for income? It, it will generate cash. But, but again, the valuation I can't really speak to because right now the comparables are much, much lower. That, that is you know, the To Anne-Marie Horton's really smart interview yesterday with Shell Oil, John, she started with a dividend. 
Shell has basically done nothing. I mean, ExxonMobil, 10 years trailing, 3.1% per year. You get a big U.S. dividend. Shell, you get, John, a 6% dividend. I mean, Shell should be on the real yield. And change almost 6.5% is your your dividend. Are we going to get that dividend from Aramco, would you suggest? Uh, I know you're not. Yeah, I, I really doubt it's going to be that high. But a dividend is definitely one of the ways that they will be paying investors and themselves so uh, it makes sense to have a dividend, but it's not going to be as high as Bizarre. Shell. David, uh, I want to talk yeah. about what's happening with the trade story yeah, as well. Yeah, uh, yeah. On a single name issue, because yeah. I think this, this week has really taken it from a global macro story from yeah. top down yeah. to a single name story with the likes of Activision Blizzard, the likes yeah. of the NBA as well. These names, the Walt Disney Company, because of ESPN, yeah. getting caught up in two completely different value systems. If you want to operate in the United States, and you want to operate in China to satisfy the consumers in the United States and simultaneously satisfy the state in China is becoming increasingly difficult. As a stock selector, a stock picker, how are you thinking about that at the moment, David? Oh, this is is an incredibly complex area. We could talk about this for a while, and I will tell you, the question is, if you run a company, who are you responsible to? If it's creating value for your shareholders and owners? Or is it the stakeholders, including society at large, the customers? It's almost undoable right now because of the issues you just said, that there's no way for a company to satisfy all their stakeholders. But as an investor, their duty is to create value for shareholders. And so they have to make an economic decision that's best for the company, no matter what the politics. And that is going to be very difficult in this environment. And many of these companies flicked the switch on that in the last couple of months and said that the uh, the shareholder is no longer the number one priority. That was some news that came out, led by the likes of JP Morgan, I believe. David, do you believe that in the first place? And if that is to be true, if we're meant to take account of all the stakeholders in our business now as a business leader, how complex will it be to navigate two completely different markets, the United States and China? Oh, it's going to be a much harder world to invest in and to run a company in. I mean, as a, as a, as a shareholder and investor, I'm going to make an economic decision on whether yeah. the company is doing the right thing for us as owners. But that does include, yeah. to some degree, these um, you know, sh- stakeholder issues and you know, ethical political issues. Epic Partners, foundational, sharp ratio, risk-free rate. Where's the risk-free rate right now? Uh, to three decimal points? <laughs> it's pretty low. And actually, this, is, this has been one of the scary things that has happened since QE started in 2012 and has almost restarted this year, is that many companies, back to the unicorns, who probably shouldn't exist, can still raise money. And, you know, this is still concerning as a free cash flow investor because yeah. the law of economics is the competitor who is more profitable eventually wins. But now the person yeah. who can lose the most money can disrupt the profitable companies. Quickly walk through an example. You don't even have to yeah. mention the name of a yeah. company you got wrong where you looked at the free cash flow. It looked legitimate. And three or five years later, you guys said, man, we messed that up. Uh, how, how do you get there? Yeah, it's usually because of some change in the market or competition. Um, we're pretty good about the profitability of the company. It's not a management issue. No, but as a disruptor, let's put it this way. Walt Disney was one of the most profitable companies. It's been a great stock. Netflix disrupted the industry. It can lose. It's losing $3.5 billion this year and will lose more next year. He's reading your mind. And has spent more money on content than even Disney had. 
uh, and yet will never make money. But it is affecting Disney, and Disney now will have to invest a lot of money, basically hurt shareholder value, to compete, and they will. Uh, they'll probably be successful, does, as a matter of fact, in the long term, uh, but they've hurt shareholder value in the short term. Does Apple change if they've got to get into content? Paul Sweeney suggests that won't be nearly as profitable as the Apple Combine. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I think uh, Apple Apple does want to transition to recurring revenue services, including yeah. uh, content, but this is an area they don't have any competitive advantage in to begin with. They're going to spend a lot of money, and once again... Uh, it does hurt shareholder value. In fact, that was one of the issues we had with Apple as a long-term holder. Just to be clear here, David, just to clean this up, because I think it's really, really important. If, if we do describe this era as the era of easy money, and some people yeah. might push aggressively back on that, but if this era came to a close, and this very unique era of exceptionally easy money ended, are you saying that some of these business models that have been established, that the likes of the Walt Disney Company and others are getting involved in, are ultimately unsustainable at this price level? They're unsustainable business models. Well, for Walt Disney, they have the capital to survive this. It's just hurting near-term profits and mid-term profits. And for Netflix? But for the disruptors like Netflix, this would be a disaster. Uh, they literally have to go to market at least once to twice a year to stay in business. And they have successfully done that, but that could come to yeah. an end. We are out of time. David really interesting Pearl, stuff, Thank David. you so much. Yeah. Epic partners there, and particularly on trade and the ramifications with China. It's a story John and I are watching. What a session it was overnight. The market dropping on a report from the South China Morning Post suggesting that deputy level talks had gone poorly. The Chinese delegation may leave early. Then the market rallied on reports. They will stay through Friday. Then we rolled over, then bounced back. As Bloomberg reported, the US may roll out a currency pact as part of a deal that could also suspend a planned tariff increase next week. The talks at a high level haven't even started yet. Equity futures all over the place. Right now, we are negative around about five points on the S&P 500, down around about a tenth of 1%. For the Fed's view on all of this, I'm really pleased to say that we can now catch up with the Dallas Fed President, Robert Kaplan, alongside our colleague, Bloomberg's Michael McKee. Well, thank you very much. We would like to uh, welcome Rob Kaplan to Bloomberg Radio and Television Worldwide. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thanks for being in Texas. Uh, as we noted just minutes ago, you released an essay on the economy and monetary policy in which yeah. you say, at this juncture, having adjusted the policy rate twice this year, it is my intention to take some time to carefully monitor economic developments. That sounds like you're not convinced that you need to cut rates on October 30th. Uh, I'll, I'll withhold judgment until right before the meeting. Uh, I was uh, supportive of the July cut. Uh, also was an advocate of the September cut. And the reason I was in favor of those cuts is I feel that decelerating global growth, weakness in manufacturing, weakness in business investment, there's a risk that those that those weaknesses may intensify and spread to other parts of the U.S. economy, and I felt it was appropriate for us to take some action. Now that we've acted twice, uh, I'm going to withhold judgment here and take, uh, we've got about 20 days to the next meeting, I plan to take most of it to make a judgment. Well, you also say in your essay, I believe that moves in U.S. market-determined rates are consistent with concerns about economic weakness spreading more broadly to other parts of the U.S. economy. Now, market rates, particularly Fed funds futures, have 
priced in a rate cut. Do you have to ratify what the markets are thinking? No, the market rates I'm referring to are uh, particularly, uh, particularly I'm looking at the Treasury curve. And, and since the fall of 2018, over the last year, the 10-year Treasury has gone from three and a quarter uh, yield to a high 150s today. It's about 165 basis point rally. It's a substantial rally. In that same time, the Fed funds rate has only moved down about 50 basis points, at least since the beginning of this year. So we've had a substantial financial move in market-determined rates. I think some of it is global liquidity, but some of it is increased pessimism about future growth, mainly due to trade tensions. And, and no, I don't, I don't think the Fed has to chase uh, that move. But I think it did tell me, that substantial move tell me that the setting of the Fed funds rate was probably too tight in July and September. It may still be too tight, but that's a judgment I want to make as, uh, as we go through the next few weeks. Well, given that investors are so certain of a rate cut, do you risk maybe a, a redux of the taper tantrum if you don't ratify what they do? So I, I think the one thing you've heard me say before, market expectations can change on a dime. Uh, and I don't think my job is to satisfy the markets. It, it is to figure out whether we've got the right policy setting, particularly a setting that fosters economic growth. Also, uh, it, it, other part of my job, by the way, is to call out it's not just monetary policy that has uh, been a cause of this slowdown. And monetary, more than monetary, monetary policy is going to be needed if we're going to grow faster. And I'm talking about uh, growing the workforce uh, improving uh, 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 trade uh, and de-escalating trade tensions, and also other moves on uh, education, skills, training, and other things that would increase our ability to grow. The uh, minutes of your September meeting show a discussion about whether to put something in the statement or publicly suggest when you would end this cutting cycle. Do we get something like that? Uh, I, I, I'm not uh, necessarily sure that that's appropriate. I think when you start hearing people like me and others say, I'm agnostic about whether we move from here, uh, that would tell you that if nothing changes, we're going to stay where we are. But, but uh, I, I think we're, we've got so much uncertainty and so much policy uncertainty, uh, I think it would be wise for us not to over-telegraph where we are in the, in the cycle. I have said, though, that I thought that this, uh, this cutting we're doing should be limited, restrained, and modest, and not uh, the start of a full-fledged cutting cycle. I still believe that. Well, in your essay, you note, as the chairman did just a few days ago, that uh, growth is being affected by slowing economies elsewhere yeah. and trade tensions in particular. So I have to ask a question I get asked all the time by people on Wall Street. Uh, what does the Fed get out of cutting rates? Because we're not suffering from an aggregate demand shortfall here. How do you help? So uh, I do think when rates are this low, uh, Fed funds cuts maybe the marginal additional effect might be less than it would be if rates were higher or credit conditions were tighter. But that doesn't mean that cutting the Fed funds rate doesn't have an impact. It does. There's still a substantial number of borrowers that borrow based on the short-term rate. Uh, and in addition, I've been concerned about the shape of the yield curve, particularly if the Fed funds rate is above the 10-year Treasury uh, and there's a substantial gap. It, it, it has a tendency to make it harder to borrow short and lend long. And I think that, if it was prolonged, 
would eventually cause a tightening of financial conditions. So sometimes when you're cutting rates, there is a short-term positive economic effect, but there's also, uh, you have to look over the horizon, particularly uh, as to whether you think there's some uh, distortion in the curve that I think suggests our policy settings too tight. Well, you're not concerned about running out of ammunition when we do face a downturn? I'm, I, I'm, I'm worried about that argument, but I'd rather use ammunition when it matters most. And I've said a number of times, if we wait and withhold our ammunition and wait to see a broader slowing in the economy, i.e. We, we wait for this slowing to reach the consumer, and then we have a more severe slowing, we will have waited too long in that all the ammunition we have, I don't think will be enough to arrest that slowing. I think moving modestly now gives us the best chance to avoid a more severe slowing. And that's why I want to use the ammunition now, even though, yes, it means we'll have a little less ammunition for later. We're speaking with Robert Kaplan, the president of the Dallas Fed on Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide. Dallas Fed's specialty is trade. So given the fact that everybody's talking about that as the source of our problems, can you quantify what it means? Is it a headwind? Is it an anchor? If they reach some kind of deal, does the economy turn around? If they don't, does it tank? So here's the, here's the confusing or vexing thing about trade. If you just took the amount of goods we're talking about, uh, and, and uh, say, vis-a-vis -vis us in China uh, and other countries and multiply the, uh, a potential tariff on those goods, you'd say the impact on GDP growth in the United States should be very modest. Here's th there's a second-order effect, though, we believe at the Dallas Fed is far more substantial, and that's the impact of trade uncertainty on business investment. Uh, and, and on manufacturing. And what do I mean by that? Uh, a lot of these trade relationships, particularly as I mentioned before with Mexico, uh, our, our logistics supply chain relationships that are critical to the country, USMCA isn't yet ratified, but the uncertainty we've had for a good part of this year about trade with Mexico, we think took the wind out of business investment. And this trade dispute with China, which we think is very appropriate, uh, intellectual property rights, technology transfer mean more to us probably than the size of the trade deficit uh, strategically. But the uncertainty about that relationship and uh, and news of it, new events that occur every week or two that change the view on this, we, we find are causing businesses to say, let's just time out. Let's just put business investment on hold. I'm not going to cancel it, but let's put it on hold for this year, maybe all of next year. And that's why you're seeing business direct investments so weak. Now, that's a, not a huge part of GDP, business direct investment, but if that slows, it can start to seep in to other parts of the economy. So it's the second and maybe the third order effects from trade uncertainty and trade tensions that I think have a more significant effect on the economy, which is harder to measure. It's time when businesses are planning for 2020. You suggest they're going to stay on hold. So yeah. what we're seeing now, the kind of growth, 1.7 to 2% is what we get for 2020? Uh, our forecast for this year, at least for the second half of the year, is 1.7. Uh, and maybe it'll be in that neighborhood for 2020. Uh, I, I'm not sure what we see that will make it better than say one and three quarters to 2%. Uh, and yeah, most businesses I talk to right now are want to stay nimble and they realize that there could be new policy pronouncements uh, anytime. And with that amount of uncertainty, they're not cutting back their business, 
but they're uh, putting new projects on hold. And the other thing they're doing is watching very carefully if there's a broader slowing. And if there's a broader slowing they see, say, in the consumer, I think they're at least on their toes that they will take further action. And that would cause even a further slowing. So I think we're in a fragile period in here, which is why I'm glad the Fed has taken some action in July and September. But I, I think this could go either way. We can avert a more severe slowdown, but I think the jury's out right now. In the minutes, uh, you got a report on what happened with repo because it had been just a day or two before you met. Yeah. Uh, and yet you didn't discuss what to do. The chairman this week said you've reached some decisions that you're going to move forward. So did you have a conference call or something in between and, and make decisions and set things up? So I'm, I'm not going to disclose things that haven't been publicly disclosed uh, other than to say uh, at the time of the uh, FOMC meeting in September, we announced these daily repo facilities. And just for people who are listening, what that basically does is help distribute uh, a repo across the system, i.e. if big banks aren't lending their reserves in, overnight, in the overnight funding markets, a standing repo facility uh, or an over, a daily repo facility has the a, a purpose of getting rid of those frictions. So we've been doing that every day. Uh, we are having more deliberations. Uh, I don't want to foreshadow those, but we'll be making some announcements in the very near future, not just about repo, but also about increasing the size of our balance sheet in a way that improves the reserve levels, uh, in, especially in light of increased U.S. Treasury issuance, uh, tax payments, and other frictions that we're seeing. So I think there, we, we believe, and I believe there's a need to do both, repo and increase the size of the balance sheet to some extent in order to uh, raise the reserve levels. And, and, uh, and, and we've lost reserves since early September, mainly because of tax payments and because of treasury issuance. We need to restore some of what we've lost. Jay Powell said you're not allowed to finish your interviews without saying, but it's not QE. It's not QE, uh, and he's right to say that, and, and it's, cor it's correct that that's not the case, because we're just buying bills. If we do this, whatever we announce, we'll just be buying bills, uh, whereas QE historically has been buying securities out along the curve in order to lower those term rates in order to incentivize maybe mortgage lending and risk taking. This will be just related to bills and primarily targeted the uh, overnight funding markets and making sure we can uh, appropriately set the Fed funds rate in the target range. Robert Kaplan, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thanks. Live from the Dallas Fed, we'll send it back to you. Hey, Mike, great work, as always. Bloomberg's really Michael McKee there, sat sitting down with the Dallas Fed president, Mr. Robert Kaplan. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.